0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Ramesh Gunasakera on his latest novel, Suncatcher. Born in Sri Lanka, Ramesh Gunasakera is the award-winning author of five novels and three short story collections. His debut novel, Reef, was shortlisted for both the Booker Prize for Fiction and the Guardian Fiction Prize. The Sandglass, his second novel, was awarded the inaugural BBC Asia Award. Ramesh lives in London and we're going to be talking about his latest novel, Suncatcher, today. Ramesh, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Thank you very much, Nira. Great T- to be here.
1: Tell me, first of all, how you would describe Suncatcher...
2: This is always the most difficult question, isn't it? And I know you you ask it. Well, Suncatcher is about the friendship of two boys, young boys. Cairo is the younger one, Jay is the older one. And they come from very different backgrounds. And the novel is about Cairo discovering a new world that he had hardly dreamt of. And slowly, in the course of a brief friendship that lasts six months or so discovering the fault lines of that new world and learning how to cope with it
1: and then the novel is set in it's 1964 in Ceylon as as was yes and um, this is before you know the, the change to, to Sri, Sri Lanka. Lanka in the early 70s and before the civil war um, but it's set at a particular time of political upheaval in the country which we'll, we'll go into yeah in a while Reef your first novel was set Roughly a similar time in in Ceylon, a little bit later. Yeah, um, that novel was. It's the twenty fifth anniversary of yeah. of that novel, and I wonder if setting it in a similar time was a was a conscious decision.
2: It was, yes. Um, but there were two things pushing me towards this to writing this book. One is that it's been in the background for a very long time, probably since I ever started writing centuries ago, as it were, and uh, the story of. The difficulties and the impact of early friendship was something that, that's been on my, my mind. And, you know, looking back at things that I've scribbled over the years, I, I know that even in the very early years, even before I was published, I was, you know, scribbling poems or stories that had something of this story in it. So it's been around for a long time. I didn't have a way of writing it. And then I wrote other books. But the second push for this one to come now, I suppose, is really the last book I wrote, which is a book called Noontide Toll. And that's set much more recently, um, though now time has passed. It was set in the immediate aftermath of the end of the, the war in Sri Lanka. And that was a very crucial, critical time, a traumatic time. And I wanted in that book to, in a sense, engage with that moment, which I think isn't often done and wasn't certainly done at the time. So it was a book written quickly to, in a sense, engage with the immediate aftermath and how you deal with this traumatic thing that's happened. And it seemed to me a very important kind of watershed moment when people were, in a sense, rethinking history, rewriting history, trying to shape the past to fit how they would look at the future. So when I'd finished with that book, I thought, I'd like now to go, you know, I'd like to actually, in a way, leave that world behind and try and try to go somewhere else. And I thought I'd like to go back to a period before the war started, before it was really even on the horizons, as it were. And then I suppose these, this whole story that I wanted to write also came back to me. And the 60s was when I was growing up. And so I thought I'd go back to that time and try and explore how society as it was then, as I rem- remembered it, and as I could find out about it. You no, know, what was in that society that could have possibly, was it going to lead to anything like what it actually led to? And I was sort of, you know, I could have said this novel time in the 60s. It could have been 68, it could have been 62. But as I kind of thought about it and looked into it, Nineteen sixty-four suddenly became. It kind of beckoned me and said, "This is the moment to concentrate on." And as as you say, we'll talk about it later. But it suddenly be, it seemed to become actually quite a pivotal moment. And the pivotal moment in sort of grander terms is, of course, to do with with the left wing movements in Sri Lanka in Ceylon as it was then. But I mean, this book is really the book about the two kids, the yeah. two boys, and their you know their. 12, 14, that sort of age. And they're not thinking about the politics. But I wanted to see how that world impinges on the growing person. And in a way, I think for me, anyway, this book has become not only about friendship, but about the growth of political awareness. I'm sure I didn't have political awareness when I was that age. But I know people do now, you know, for what, for all that people say uh, I think you know the political awareness has actually come down in age over the years and so I think that's that's really really interesting
1: against that backdrop the political backdrop there's a again, a more personal traumatic event that is mm-hmm. the sort of heart of of this story which we obviously we won't give away yeah. Um but Cairo uh, is our narrator, he's a first person narrator, and he is telling this story, recalling this story yeah. from a distance, yes. you know, from a from a point in the future. Yeah. And so again, you you mentioned that you know the previous book was about, you know, ideas of the retelling of history. Yeah. Yeah. Um you've written often, you know, not least in Reef, about ideas of, you know, memory and mm-hmm. forgetting. And so again, here this book is you know, telling the story, deliberately choosing to tell the story yeah. from a point in the future inevitably yeah. means that, again, it's, it's, it's looking at themes of, of memory.
2: Yes, it, it is. It is partly, partly shaping that. But it's also in this case, I think Cairo is perhaps doing something that I'm doing as well, which is trying to hang on to a past that mm-hmm. is disappearing, We all do it in different ways. Sometimes we want the past to disappear. We don't want to hang on to it. And, you know, even childhood for a lot of people is a thing that rather leave behind. It isn't always a, a happy period. But in a way, I guess, as a writer, one is committed to the past. That is part of the business of writing. One of the reasons we write is to have this access to things that have moved on. And writing you know, is invented to try and kind of stop the passage of time. For me, I suppose in this story, Cairo is realizing that actually his whole life is somehow affected by what happened when he was very young, uh, when he was at this formative age, I guess. And he learned a lot from the experience. Uh, he learned a lot from the friendship. He learned a lot about himself and how to, in a sense, cope with the traumas of of life or the difficulties of life. And this business about hang- memory and forgetfulness, I suppose, you know, Sri Lanka has changed hugely from the 1960s. Um, I've been thinking about this, not least because I've been talking about this book and writing a couple of pieces about it, but simple things like, you know, the population has doubled mm-hmm. since the 1960s it's a you know it's a very different place a city like Colombo uh, where I grew up you know again population is hugely different and it's a you know it's now a metropolis it wasn't in those days there were hardly any traffic in those days. but what you remember of that is really very unreliable mm-hmm. and very difficult to get at and um In a way, I wish I had written this book maybe 10 years ago when there were people I could ask about, you know, things that I remember. You know, was it really like this or like that? But actually, by the time I started writing it and by the time I felt free enough to, in a sense, work the material, those people that I would have gone to were no longer (laughs) around, you know. Friends had passed away, parents aren't around. And the contemporaries that I can get in touch with and, and ask about it don't seem to remember the same things. And that kind of sense of a vanishing world was something that I kind of wanted to grab hold of. And Cairo feels the same way. And there's a very simple kind of example. There's a, there's a very vivid memory I have um, of watching fruit bats fly in the sky over Colombo. And I know as a kid I used to watch this regularly because me and a friend, a bit like Cairo and Jay, would look at this sort of thing. We were interested in these sort of natural phenomena and it it was just a remarkable picture in the sky of these bats flying in this regimental line. I've been back to Sri Lanka many, many times and when I started writing this book, I had this image because I've actually had this image in my head for a long time. I've written about it before. I've written poems about it. So I went back to see, to try and work out which direction they were flying. And, of course, they don't fly in like that anymore. And when I ask people, you know, do you remember when they said, no, no, we don't remember. Because nobody else actually looked up at the sky in the same way. Um, so it's just to try and kind of capture those sorts of things and make a story out of it. I was going to ask you this
1: sort of towards the end, but as we've, you know, it's sort of relevant now, as well as, you know, memory, as well as this being your memory that you're recalling of these stories, and you mentioned, like, you know, people not being around any longer, you you obviously haven't lived in Sri Lanka for for a long time. And, and, you know, you've written a lot about, not always, but, you know, often your your stories are about, you know, Sri Lanka. And I wonder about just this idea of writing about a place from a distance, as exile is, you know, Probably too strong a word, yes, but you know. Uh, yeah. but you know, looking back at a place that where you no longer live,
2: I think I think it's it's useful put it that way. What did Joyce say? Um, I think it was exile, uh, silence, and craft. But distance is valuable. But distance is elastic, and I think all writers. And you know, I don't think this is going out on a limb or anything. I think all writers use distance. It's just the distance could be the distance we have right now between here and the road out there. So when you're writing, you actually, you're not, you're very, very rarely writing in the moment. You're very rarely the turner who is tied to a mast painting the storm in a storm. Now, there are writers who do that. Reportage, I suppose, sometimes is, but not always. But most of the time, It is retrieving stuff and reliving it, and that distance is there. And in my case, I suppose, that distance geographically is a long way, but imaginatively it isn't, you know. And sometimes for me, I mean, over the years, as I've written this, these books, I suppose, you know, Sri Lanka is just at the end of the Piccadilly Line, you know. (laughs) You just get on the Piccadilly Line, Finsbury Park, get off Heathrow, and a few hours later you're there. So it's no, you know, it's not a big deal.
1: Let's talk about... Cairo, in a bit more detail. Who okay. is he? You mean, is he me? <laughs> <Or are>
2: you, <laughs> no. Are you, is that the, is that tell, the us, tell us
1: something. No no, 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 no. I mean, you've already mentioned that, you know, there are, you know, I guess there are autobiographical elements you know the
2: bats feature in this yes I mean in I story, mean in, in, in all fiction I mean I, I, I think early on I would strenuously deny any autobiography in any of my fiction but the truth is that in fiction you do draw on yourself and you know all your characters will have something of you in them and something of the world that you know including everyone you know in it but they're not representations It's just the material out of which something has to be transformed. Um, Cairo, in the book, he's a character that has changed enormously in the writing of the book. I think when I first started, the book was really all about Jay. It was, in a sense, presenting Jay. And it was maybe, you know, in the rewriting and, you know, three, four, five, six drafts down the line, as it were, I, I... began to re- realize actually the story is about Cairo and his awakening. Not so much the strong, I mean, it is partly the political awakening, but it is, you know, it is the sort of personal political awakening. The, the understanding of how he has to relate to the rest of the world, the balance of power in the rest of the world as far as he can see, the injustices he can, he's beginning to be aware of. But he comes from a family that's uh, a fairly ordinary family, if you like, an urban, ordinary family in Sri Lanka. Not entirely ordinary, because obviously they're middle class. Um, But what's perhaps extraordinary about his family is that his mother works for the radio, Radio Ceylon, as it was, which was modeled on the BBC. Mm -hmm. So it was very much that kind of uh, place she works at in the back room. But his father is a civil servant who is also a Marxist. He's a Trotskyite. And he's a sort of armchair Trotskyite, really. Uh full of ideas, doesn't actually implement anything or do anything. It's not very practical. But he is he's a left-wing intellectual, if you like, at the time. And um, so Cairo grows up with these two adults in his life and doesn't take much notice of either of them, really, because they are just parents. And certainly the father's Trotsky ideas just wash over him. They mean absolutely nothing. Until he goes away on a jaunt with his friend Jay. And because he's a bit of a bookworm, he carries a book, but he doesn't want to take too much of a book, and he just takes the smallest book he could find on his father's bookshelf, which happens to be a pamphlet by Trotsky, which he finds very difficult to read. But there are a few things in it that begin to interest him. But he's a he's a kid who I think what uh, characterizes him most is that he lives in in the world of the imagination quite a bit because he reads, he reads, he reads just whatever he can get hold of. Before the Trotsky, it would have been you know anything from Enid Blyton to Ian Fleming, I suppose. <laughs> and you know his place of refuge is a sort of secondhand bookshop where he can collect these books, and so he lives in that mythical world and. Part of it is the Wild West most of the time. And so meeting Jay changes his world because this is now a real companion as opposed to all the imaginary companions he's had. And that leads to, I guess, a slight blurring of the imaginary world and the real world. And he doesn't quite know how to handle that. And it becomes quite dangerous as a result.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: You're yeah, listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ramesh Gunasekera, and we're talking about his latest novel, Suncatcher. And, Ramesh, I want to move us on to talk about Jay. So Cairo yeah. meets this boy... Um, is immediately Im- impressed with him and they become, you know, sort of, it's a fragile friendship. I won't say firm friends, you know, it's, it's a sort of spiky friendship. Mm-hmm. And Jay comes from, well, you know, Cairo, they're not poor. He comes from a solidly yeah. middle-class background, but, no. but Jay's family are at, a, at another level again.
2: Yeah, he comes from a very privileged and wealthy family. But he's, I guess he's, uh, he's a rebel, and a maverick, and he just does what he likes, and he doesn't have any sort of airs about him, or anything. He he just takes things for granted. But his passion, I guess, or his what's alluring about him, I think, is his relationship with the natural world around him. So he has this talent, I suppose, to relate to the natural world with with the animal world as it were. And you know, in my mind, he's he's. Uh, He's a mixture of, I don't know... Um, could be Dr. Doolittle at one time, or Gerald Durrell, or someone like that, or Tarzan. You know. it's, for Cairo, he's that kind of a mix of person that um, Cairo is just completely floored by. He just doesn't know how this is possible. And Jay, in a sense, takes him under his wing, almost as if another pet, mm-hmm. in a way, I guess, but he's, in a sense, trying to teach Cairo all that he knows about the world, about the natural world. And he is desperately fearful, I think, about the future of that natural world. I mean, something we recognize now, mm-hmm. the future of the natural world, the, the vanishing world, and how one needs to protect that, that wildlife, uh, the rewilding of places and so on. But he just intuitively feels that there is a danger to this world that he cherishes and that he knows so well. So he, you know, unlike you and I, perhaps, I don't know, maybe you are a birder. For I, I know I a birder, as it are. happens, yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, you would know how important it is to be able to name things. Mm-hmm. If, and if you can't name them, you very rarely see them. I think this is what people tell me. And I'm beginning to, to understand that. And Jay is the boy who can name every plant, every bird, every animal that's around. And he's teaching Cairo this because he feels that he has to save his environment, Kalamu, from losing its wildlife. And he feels terribly agitated about this. And he sees everything that the adult world is doing threatening this natural world. Whether he's right or wrong is something that we will make up our own minds as we read the book, I guess, but Cairo obviously believes in that, and so is is trying to help him with that, so they see you know little green patches in the in the you know there are wastelands and so on in the town in the city, and they see buildings going up there, and they want to stop that. they fear the sort of concretization of the planet as we all do now, and that is. That is his his passion.
1: I want I'm glad you raised the the Jay's you know love of nature and you know his his collecting and naming because you know environmental issues. There are a few sort of themes in this story mm-hmm. um, that were relevant to the Colombo, the Ceylon yeah. of the 1960s, yeah. but also have sort of modern re- relevance now. Obviously, environmentalism is one. Um, There's, you know, ideas about the sort of suppression of the press or, you know, fake news. Mm -hmm. Um, The rise of the right Mm -hmm. is a a theme of this story. Again, all of these things are, you know, the backdrop to Mm -hmm. the stories of these two boys. And I just wanted to go back to to Cairo's father. There's an interesting moment here in, as you said, for the left in Sri Lankan politics at at the time, in that, as I understand it, you know, the Trotskyists in Sri Lanka at that time basically... This was the you know the largest collection of yeah. the, uh, of Trotskyists in the world at yeah. that time, and they yeah. were you know through various sort of alliances and, and machinations were like close to power at this time. Again, perhaps something that's, a, that's possibly well, of I mean, I mean, to today. <laughs> I
2: thought I was re- writing a book in a remote <laughs> time, and I remember you know just the other you know before it came out, I was I was just explaining to someone. Describing it, um, you know, pretty pretty much reading out what the front flap is, and they were nodding away, saying, you know, oh yeah, it's set now, is it? <laughs> you know, because it is very much, very much those those issues, and you know, yes, the Trotskyite ideas coming back, uh, the the left, in a sense, um, socialism, which was out not mentioned for many, many, many years, is now talked about. And in 1964, yeah, in Ceylon, it was a very, it was a very politically really interesting moment because that party, the LSSP, let's not go into what all these stand for; it's it's mind-boggling. But uh, was actually the, also the largest party in the country and and the oldest one and uh, a very powerful one. Um, but it hadn't been in, you know, it it contested elections, but it never. It didn't get into power until 1964 when part of the leadership decided they would join the socialist government, uh, which needed a coalition to govern, uh, that they would join the government. And this this was a split in the party because not everyone agreed. They thought this was the wrong way to go, that this was, you know, selling out in some way. And in a sense... That government, that coalition government, didn't survive the, the year, as it were. At the end of the year, it, uh, it collapsed. But that was the high point of that party, in a sense. They came into came into power, or part of it came into power. And after that, it never really regained regained ground. It had to be transformed. It transformed completely, and in a sense, the left, the what might be called the ultra left. Uh, took a different form, which ended up, really, we go back to, I suppose, the end of my first novel, Reef, uh, which is comes towards the uh, 1971 uprising, the Marxist uprising, but that uh, you know, that's a different story entirely. Um, so 1964, you know, I began to see as really quite a pivotal moment in that sense.
1: To finish it off, can I get you to, to read us a bit of some catcher?
2: Yeah, I'll read the, um, well, I'll read the opening um, and I'll uh, possibly skip a couple of paragraphs to try and make it a, a sensible little piece, as it were. So we begin at the beginning. I first met Jay in a church car park off the high road, midway as the crow flies between the mosque and the temple, one June afternoon in 1964. Two boys on the brink of a bond that would alter the course of our lives, neither knowing which one would blink first or fall furthest, nor the cost of finding out. He rode in, hands on hips, freewheeling on the dusty tarmac, using only his weight to steer his bike as he leant from side to side. Blue stripy feathers and rawhide tied to the upside-down handlebars twirled in the hot, sticky air. The sun-baked streaks on his proud boyish cheeks shone like war paint. Want a race? He lobbed the challenge, veering close. I wheeled around. Where? The Scarp. Torrington. Jay stretched his long slender neck, more like a swan than an eagle, strands of damp hair playing across his open face. If you dare. Been down that, I said. From the beginning, I lied. Although it might have been the steepest slope in my part of town, I didn't see why that should be a problem if it didn't bother him. My only misgiving was the rivalry I felt rising in my chest.
1: So I've been talking to Ramesh Ganeshakara about his latest novel, Suncatcher, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Ramesh, thank you so much for
2: coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me.